Welcome to Mission Unplugged, genuine conversations about Christian faith in action with young innovators locally, nationally, and globally. I'm Mitch. I'm Elise. And I'm Jesse. Welcome to Mission Unplugged. In this episode, Mitch caught up with Miriam Dale. Miriam is an award-winning poet theologian. She studied at Ridley College and Melbourne School of Theology. And her book, The Weight of Hope, won the 2016 Sparklit Young Australian Christian Writer Award. She's lived in Egypt, Germany, and Syria, and has been heavily involved in cross-cultural work from a young age. In this episode, I caught up with Miriam to talk about how cross-cultural understandings of the Bible expand our horizons, how faith, poetry, and contemplative prayer hang together, and what it's like to be an artist in the church. I love when Miriam said to share your faith is to grow it, to give it life and air. I love how art and poetry is as much a part of Miriam's faith as prayer and study, and how she makes spaces for people to explore and share art together. Before we jump into this interview, just a reminder that Safe Water September, our annual fundraising challenge, is live now. Commit to drink just water all September and change lives through Safe Water. Find out more about how you and your team can get involved at safewaterseptember.org.au. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Miriam Dale. I get really passionate, one of the things I'm really passionate about in general is reframing the way that people see the world, um, even if it's just by a few degrees, because I feel like often we, we get the wrong answers because we're kind of asking the wrong questions, and actually if we just shifted a few things, maybe we'd have different questions and better answers. Um, and poetry, I feel like, is a way that I can do that. So. For me, poetry is something that I love and delight in, um, and I love playing with words, and I think they're the best thing, but it's also a tool for that um, sense of how do I reframe the world, what does it mean to, like, to ask better questions um, and to look for God where we are. Hey, Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here digitally. <laughs> it's a pleasure having you on. I'm really excited to chat with you and um, hear about your experiences of mission, of cross-cultural work, um, and your poetry, and all the other interesting things that go into making you who you are. Awesome. So I wanted to kick us off by starting really broad um, mm-hmm. and just asking you, what does mission mean to you? Okay. Um, well, since you've asked me a really broad question, I'm going to give a really broad answer um, and say I think at its most basic foundational level, mission is participating in God's big story. Um, it's joining him in his work um, and it's living out our relationship with him most fully um, because our relationship with him is not designed to be purely just us and God. It's actually also then impacts our relationship with other people and with the world um, and with creation. And I think mission fits into all of those things and it is the living out of um, one of the things he's created us to be and do um, in all of our different lives and um, ways of expressing it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really broad answer. I have more detail to kind of go into, um, (laughs) but that might get us started. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Um, 
So for a bit of background for our listeners about yourself, tell us a bit about your um, your early years, your formation. Um, you know, what were did you grow up in the church? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I grew up in the church. Um, my parents have always taken their faith really seriously and it's been really important to them. So um, I grew up with an understanding of that and um, attending church regularly. Uh, I didn't actually grow up in Australia. So um, if you hear different accents coming through in my conversation, um, that's unintentional. <laughs> um, so I grew up overseas and um, related to a whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different backgrounds. And so that has impacted the way I talk, as well as lots of other things. Um, yeah, so I spent most of my growing up years in the Middle East, in Egypt and Syria, and then attending a boarding school in Germany. Um, and all of those had um, a really strong church component, um, all aspects of kind of life there, but also a really strong sense of um, not everyone saw the world as I did and that that was, was a thing that happened and that that was kind of okay to talk about and to have conversations about. Um, and so a lot of my neighbours were Muslim. I didn't actually grow up around atheists or agnostics, at least people who weren't proclaiming that they're atheists or agnostics. Um, and so that was something that I sort of took me by surprise when I moved back to Australia. But I grew up more with, um, yeah, Christians and Muslims who both were really kind of um, devout and took their faith seriously or, or at least had a strong sense that it was a big part of their identity. Um, so that's really formed, I think, my understanding of faith as a big part of identity and something that, that impacts lots of areas of life. Um, and also something that it's just really fun to talk about um, because in a lot of those cultures, uh, the first question that you ask someone might be their name and the second question, um, if you haven't already gleaned it by their name, because often names indicate which kind of religious or faith background people were from in those contexts, um, the second question might be, what's your religious belief? Um, and lots of just really positive conversations about that. So I love talking about this stuff, which again, I think, took some of my Australian friends by surprise when I moved back here. <laughs> yeah, we take a pretty different approach to faith in uh, the public sphere, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's often considered to be a really personal, private thing here. Um, and while I think there's really, obviously, personal and private aspects to faith, mm. I think, um, yeah, I love discussing it. I think it's great. Mm. How does that um, those experiences change the way that you interact with faith compared to um, other Australians that you meet? Um, well, so for people who've grown up overseas, um, particularly with a similar kind of experience, so the broader category is, is um, TCKs or third culture kids. Um, one of the things that you may notice if you've met a third culture kid is that um, we're not always very good at small talk. Uh, and there's a whole range of reasons for that. There's a whole body of research around um, why TCKs are weird in their own particular way. Um, <laughs> but I think that means that, yeah, that's kind of combined with growing up around people who are really comfortable to talk about often quite personal things like religion um, and and with family members who really kind of love to talk about a lot of stuff as well to mean that, yeah, um, I don't do small talk particularly well. Um and I love to talk about the big things in life. Um, and I love to find out about different cultural contexts and try and understand what things look like from different perspectives. Um, I think it's equipped me to understand that even within Christianity, um, while there is 
a an objective truth capital T um, often what we perceive as um, objective truth is like extra stuff that we've added onto um, the Bible because of our reading of it from our cultural context so it's given me the challenge to ask questions about how much of this is um, me reading it as a 20th century quote-unquote Western Christian um, or how much of this is um, something that's in the text um, it's made me uncomfortable with the phrase obviously from the text uh, because as soon as someone <laughs> says that I'm like I just don't think you get the question yeah um, or a clear reading of the text tells us I'm like mm. now I think you know um, I believe really firmly in, in trusting the Bible um, mm. and I also believe really firmly in um, reading it uh, intelligently and with an understanding of genre and history and context um, and in the context of relationship with God most importantly I think that's something I feel really strongly about as um yeah we can deconstruct lots of things around us in the world um but it's good to to read the bible both intelligently and in the context of relationship with God so we don't need to dig away at our very foundations as we're standing on them Mm. that's Mm. a bit tangential sorry (laughs) no it's good it's good Mm. um Kind of off the back of that, I'm curious if there's um, things in your past experience, particularly um, time spent in the Middle East, that have really strongly influenced the way that you read the Bible. Yes, would be the short answer. Um, But it's, I mean, sometimes it's hard to distinguish what they are because it's kind of built in a little bit. Um, I think... Um, the fact that English isn't the language that the Bible was written in, which cognitively uh, most people know, but um, often we forget, um, and that actually when you read the Bible in different languages, again, like when the Hebrew and Greek is translated into different languages, it can do different things, um, and that that forms theology. So, um, yeah, reading particular parables in the light of different cultural contexts really can reframe, um, yeah, what that looks like. So, um I was talking to my aunt who spent some time working overseas as well and she was telling me about um for her there was a bit of a light bulb moment when she was reading um when Jesus talks about don't you know put your um your light under your um under your bed or you know like let your light shine uh and she says well in uh in Tanzania where she was working beds are like on the ground um so there's not sort of a gap underneath. And so as soon as you put something lit underneath, well, A, you run the risk of setting it on fire, but B, it actually just goes out immediately. And so it's not even the sense of, and this kind of ties back into what is mission. Um, it's not that God is telling us don't kind of be secretive about your faith. I think he's telling us, like, to share your faith is to grow it um, and to give it life and air um, and to be secretive or fearful or um completely private about your faith is to actually deprive it of life um, and to yeah um, weaken it I think or to run the risk of weakening it um, so I think that's an example well I've actually just nicked that example from my art but I think it really encapsulated like yeah even understanding of like the good shepherd and the way that Jesus is, describes you know himself as a good shepherd in the Middle East shepherds walk behind their sheep not in front um, and it's this kind of sense of they um, walk with and protect and guide from, from 
the rear and the front end like all around, but they actually, they're not just leading out in front and expecting the sheep to keep up. They're um, walking amongst and guiding and, and walking behind the sheep. And it's this sense of accompaniment and protection and company that we don't often get from the sense of the leader up ahead that mm. perhaps we think of when we think of shepherds in different contexts. Um, shame and honour stuff, which is really big biblically, um, is also really big in the Middle East. And so that's helped my understanding of some of those passages. Um, and the experiences of women in the Bible, I think it's impacted that as well because um, there's some similar cultural kind of paradigms going on there. Um, and the concepts of purity and impurity. Um, it helps as well that uh, my mother's a theologian and, and an anthropologist and an ethnographer. And so um, she's done huge amounts of work on concepts of shame and honour and concepts of purity and impurity in different cultural contexts. So I have all of those kind of rattling around in my head. Um, when I read the, the story of the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and um, what the implications are there and when I read um, parables like that. So, yeah, yeah. Mm, mm, There's a long answer to a short question. No, it's great. Um, and it's it's touched on um, a couple of key figures in your, your life and your formation. Can you tell me a bit about who are the people that have sort of fed into you um, as you've, you've grown and and developed your your own faith yeah wow um well i think the the easiest and obvious easier and obvious answers for me would be my family um i think growing up and watching how my parents do faith and how they took it seriously and how they um were very open with being human and with um yeah just what that meant but also seeking to serve God in every setting and with the way that they prayed and um, the way they cared for people. Um, and I think most of all the fact that their life is um, built around what is going to give glory to God and actually that's the biggest driver for them has been hugely significant for me because um, I think there's a lot of reasons to do a lot of things in life. Um, but when you come back to the question of does this give glory to God, um, and am I living my life for him? Like it kind of reframes things and it keeps reframing things. Um, but that sense of greater purpose is actually really helpful as well because it holds you when other things are falling away. So I think that's been really significant. Um, and they both have a strong sense of um, faith that yeah really takes the Bible seriously uh, and that really takes prayer seriously, um, but they both express it very differently. They're very different people. So I think all of those things have been really helpful to teach me about that. Um, who else? It's kind of like lots of different people along the way, people who pray for me. There's one woman um, who I met a grand total of maybe three times, and to be honest, she kind of freaked me out because she was such an intense personality. But she prayed so well and so hard um, and, like, introduced me to, like, aspects of the Holy Spirit. And I was like, wow, I, I didn't realise this was a thing. And so that was really significant. Um, yeah, teachers in high school who were thoughtful and prayerful um, and impactful in those ways and showed what it meant to live. I think having a whole bunch of different role models around what it meant to all be following Jesus um, and to all be individuals was really helpful. Um, what else? Um, I did a 
one year theology course with you, Mitch, called Year in the Sun, which is um, good times. Yeah, <laughs> intense times, um, yeah. which is the precursor of um, something that's called Next that runs now. Um, and while that course had its pros and cons, I really appreciated um, the freedom to ask questions, the freedom to take seriously what social justice looks like now, um, and the lessons around contemplative faith and spirituality, which I'd started to kind of, I'd learned from my parents, um, but I didn't realise there was kind of broader fields of expertise on that. So that was really helpful and that's been a really significant part of my faith um, and helped, gave me language for what I suspected about prayer and about the nature of God and um, what it meant to sort of spend time with God and, and breathe him in and, and wait on him. Like all of those practices um, mm. have been really significant. Mm. And um, studying theology, um, MST, which is one of the, it's the university I'm studying at the moment, um, has this little quote on their advertising postcard from a couple of years ago that said that doing theology um, will melt your mind or might stretch your mind or hurt your mind, but it will transform your heart. Um, and I think studying theology does that for me consistently. I'll, I'll often come out of a class and just be like, what? Um, how? Trinity? I don't. What? Um, but actually, once once I got why the Trinity was a big deal, like that was a game changer for me. And um, why without the Trinity, Christianity cannot be, not just because Jesus wouldn't exist, but actually the very nature of the Trinity um, is that important. And um, understanding church history and how we kind of got to where we are and how theology shifts and changes but God remains the same and um, I think those things have been really significant I think different mentors across the years um, have been really significant in helping me to reframe to ask better questions um, yeah just to kind of well, even just to calm down <laughs> um, mm. which is a really important lesson in life too so yeah I think that's a summary um yeah 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 that's good it's um always a lot goes into the formation of a person hey yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and it's hard to know like i mean how many sermons go into like shifting your faith a millimeter or a mile and like you know um so like every preacher and every person who's ah oh, so many people who've been praying for my family and, um and like the amount that goes on kind of behind the scenes, I guess, that I, mm. I'm not aware of, of people praying. Mm. Um, my aunt sent me a message the other day saying, oh, happy baptism day. You know, I was baptised as a, as a baby, so I was born Anglican. Um, and she said, you know, uh, what was it, 29, 30 years ago, um, we prayed these prayers for you and we really love seeing God answering them. Uh, and it was just really lovely and encouraging. It's really beautiful. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, when I was... By, like, sheer coincidence, I ended up attending a church that I was baptised in um, years later. I sort of, we had friends there and so I started going there and I didn't, I'd forgotten, maybe mum and dad had told me once that I was baptised there. Uh, and then one day a new minister had come and so he was looking through the registry of old baptisms and I used to work there uh, as a cleaner as well. So I was cleaning the church and he came up and he's like, oh, guess what I found in the registry of baptisms? Um, it's like, I found you, you were baptized. It's like, oh, wow. Yeah. And then that week at communion, when he gave me communion, he said, your parents' prayers were answered. This is, you know, like, this is you living out the faith that they prayed for you. And I was crying in the middle of communion. It was really beautiful. <laughs> That's really nice. Yeah. That's 
A lot of prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, you touched on this earlier, um, and I think it's come up a few times that prayer and contemplation are really important parts of your faith. And I know that your your poetry is also um, a big part of that. Could you walk us through? You know, what do you mean by contemplation, and so how does that hang together with poetry and artistic expression? Hmm. Um, oh, I wish I had this quote with me, but I'm going to try and remember it. So I think um, I grew up, yeah, knowing that you interact with God through reading the Bible and through prayer. Um, and there's a whole lot of sermons, a whole lot of resources around what prayer is and looks like. So I won't kind of burrow into all of that. But I also grew up seeing um, my parents interact with God and learn um, through sitting in silence and through waiting and through um the same books that they would read over and over again, little kind of devotional reflective books and through looking at nature and creation and seeing kind of how God revealed himself in that space. So I think I grew up with all of that understanding and and like slowly starting to grasp it a bit more when I had conversations with my parents about it um, and with what it meant to lean into that and to wait on God. And then I think when I was about 18 or 19, I was um, a leader on a camp and we had a little prayer room going and the woman who'd run the prayer room um, had just brought a whole bunch of photocopies of some quotes about prayer. And I picked one up and it's been on my wall ever since at every house that I've lived in. It's a quote by a guy called Henri Nguyen who was a, um, I want to say a Jesuit priest who's Catholic, I can't remember, anyway, from Belgium. Um, and he just, yeah, articulated a lot of what I'd struggled with or tried sort of suspected in faith, which he talks about um, going to the hour, uh, sort of going to the chapel every day for an hour and sitting in silence. And um, he sort of said these regular hours, you know, are not times of um, peace or a great spiritual experience. They're often boredom and sleepiness and frustration, um, but it's only afterwards after the fact I noticed that in my desire to return to this hour that actually God is doing something in me that um, mm. he is um, touching me where I cannot see him or feel him he's smiling on me even though I cannot see it and um, he's sort of changing my heart and then these regular so-called useless times um, become a how does he describe it a pathway through which our prayers can flow like the river flows to the sea um, and it's that sense of of so-called wasting time with God of waiting um, on him even when it's frustrating to wait even when you don't feel like it's profound or spiritual or eye-opening that is both a sacrifice of time to God and an honoring of God in that but is also um, it's a practice of um, just yeah prioritizing him and giving space for him to work in us whether we're always aware of it or not um and that sense of being still and waiting and I had yeah like I said I kind of had found that useful in my prayer life but wasn't sure I had words for it until um yeah I found this quote by Henri Nguyen and so I started reading some of his work um so one of my favorite books that I'd recommend is called the um I think it's called the three spiritual pathways and he just talks about the the journey from um loneliness to solitude um from fear to love and from um is it isolation to prayer i think yeah and so kind of his experience of um being still with god 
um, and the frustration and the joy of that. So I found that really significant in my understanding of um, what it means to wait on God because prayer is not just a list of things that we bring to God um, and it's not even then just a, a time of us sitting down and asking God to download into our heads. It's actually because a relationship with God is actually a relationship. Um, prayer is being still in that relationship and is giving God the time of day um, and is giving God the priority. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's the equivalent of if you're trying to build a relationship with someone. Um, if, for example, you have a partner and you only ever interact with them to give them a shopping list um, to go out and get, that's going to be pretty destructive to the relationship pretty fast. Mm. But that's actually a lot of what prayer is like is, God, here's my shopping list. Okay, bye. Mm. Um, or to read, you know, their shopping list. Or, but actually when you sit with someone and sometimes when you sit in silence, that's the most profound time of just kind of getting really comfortable. So I think it's that sense of um, sitting with God. And um, actually my church is doing a series on contemplative prayer. And one of the things that was raised was this idea that um, – we start with focusing on ourselves when we sit still to contemplate and all the things that are rushing around in our heads. And over time, we begin to focus on ourselves and God and so how we're relating to God. Um, and then as we give it more time and practice, um, we begin to focus on God and ourselves. So we become secondary and then kind of just on God. Um, and then, yeah, I think one of the other things that one of our lecturers at yet said that I found really impactful was um, the idea that often we treat avoiding sin as looking at all the things that we're trying to not do and not think about and not, you know, but actually when you fill your head with God, like it's just harder for other stuff to fit. Um, <laughs> and so it's not so much about like running away from everything. It's about like turning towards other things and better things um, and things that give life and define us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think mm. contemplative prayer is important because I find it energizing, um, but also because kind of most importantly, it's a sacrifice to God and it gives that time to God and it builds that relationship. Um, but it's also really not easy. So <laughs> that's the that's the big thing to kind of come back to is that um, sometimes the things that are most important aren't easy and don't feel profound, like on Renew and Talks About. Like it could be boring and frustrating and, um, and I often find that, but that's okay. That's still us being before God and um, giving him that time. And, and sometimes it's really beautiful and life-giving and mm. redefining. Mm. Um, do, you have a, do you have a BuzzFeed listicle of top three tips for people <laughs> wanting to start on a contemplative prayer journey? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I get really excited about this. Um, I think I steered my small group because they were like, oh, what's helpful for this? And I was like, guys, guys, I've got this. Um, and that's not to say that I have contemplative spirituality because, to be honest, I'm shocking at it. Um, but things that are helpful, um, I would say, are um, time. So um, making the time for it. But sometimes time can be hard to make and hard to kind of – can be really intimidating. And so I would say starting – with like 10 minutes is a really good thing. So I would um, set my alarm for 10 minutes so that I wasn't constantly checking the clock to see if I was done. Um, and that allowed me to kind of center and focus. Um, and I would also set an alarm to remind me to do it. 
Um, and I don't always do a very good job of that because you can hit snooze plenty of times, but it is the thing that says, hold on, this is important. Um, so that, I think having something physical to look at or focus on is helpful. So um, I have a holding cross, which is just like a little cross that fits in the palm of your hand. I'm a really tactile person, so having something to just kind of like hold and think about holding is helpful. Um, or a candle, I light a candle and just kind of wash that for 10 minutes. But the aim here is not to empty your mind. This is not a mindfulness exercise. This is not a um, well-being exercise. Um, it's kind of not even about you <laughs> or me. It's um, it's actually about filling your mind with, like, actually, who is Jesus? Um, and so sometimes that's focusing on a verse or two and reflecting on that. But often it's just kind of sitting with the Jesus that we know about and getting to know him. Um, and read a few books by a few contemplatives because they usually they're good writers um, because they're like super self-reflective. Um, so they're good at capturing what's going on inside. Uh, so I would say um, On Renewal obviously is a favourite, um, but Richard Foster does some of this stuff as well. And um, Teresa of Avila, um, spelled A-V-I-L-A. So she was like, I think in the 1500s. So her writing style is a little harder, but um, <laughs> just a few, yeah, start with On Renewing. Don't worry about the rest. Um, <laughs> and look, they're not the Bible, so you don't have to agree with everything that they say, but yeah. it's something that kind of draws, yeah, draws a good picture of what the aim is. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Thank you. Um, what about your poetry? How does mm. that fit into your your life of faith? Yeah, well, I think a few different ways. I think um, I have I have a journal and a poetry writing notebook, uh, and they're separate things, and that's intentional because um, when I was about 13, 12, 13, my mum introduced me to stream of consciousness writing, and I was like, I'd never understood what. I'd always tried to like write a diary and be like, today we did this. And then I get bored because like, you know, no one's life is interesting all the time. Um, there's only so many times to be like, had lunch. Um, so, but also just didn't have the discipline to write it every day. Um, and I found it stressful to have something to try and work on every day. But stream of consciousness just gives you space to sit and write down whatever comes into your head. Um, and you just don't stop writing and you write even if you can't think of what to write about, you just write about not being able to think about what to write about. And it, um, I think that really, I don't want to say released into, because it sounds really cheesy, but it like, um, yeah, released me into knowing how to write a journal um, and to just kind of pursue my thoughts and to talk to God and to like look at myself and to be more self-reflective. So I think that was really significant significant when I was younger um and I grew up around poetry and around good writing um and my family just really loves reading and writing but I didn't really write much poetry um I tried short stories and I just went not was not good at them I'm still really not um so I kind of just didn't do a lot of writing even though I hung out with a lot of writing people um and then yeah when when we did Yitz together one of our lectures was really into spoken word poetry and so I started to kind of explore that world and was really blown away by this like poetry that didn't have to be super tight and structured and that I could write um, and that actually I was kind of good at. But um, after a while, like I love spoken word poetry, um, 
but there's different styles within it. So like slam poetry is really forceful and strong um, and often really about justice and passion. And I love that and I find it really tiring to do all the time. So then I kind of, my poetry style kind of started with that focus and then kind of has moved to be a bit more reflective and I think in line to how I see the world um, and in line with the contemplative stuff. So I think writing helps me to relate to God and to connect with God because it makes me take that time with myself and with him. Um, and I think poetry, um, I get really passionate. One of the things I'm really passionate about in general is reframing the way that people see the world, um, even if it's just by a few degrees, because I feel like often we we get the wrong answers because we're kind of asking the wrong questions. And actually, if we just shifted a few things, maybe we'd have different questions and better answers. Um, and poetry, I feel like, is a way that I can do that. So for me, poetry is something that I love and delight in. Um, and I love playing with words and I think they're the best things. But it's also a tool for that um, sense of how do I reframe the world? What does it mean to, like, to ask better questions um, and to look for God where we are? Um, so that kind of ties in with um, one of the other contemplative kind of church fathers, this guy called Ignatius, and he started this whole kind of series of um, ways of reflecting on God, and one of them is called the Examine. And um, it's at the end of the day, you look back on where was God during the day and when did I turn away from God and when did I turn towards him. So I guess that's kind of what I'm excited about in poetry is actually looking for where is God in the day and in my world um, and where it might he be in the unexpected areas um, and then that can reveal to me that actually he's everywhere um, or that and not that he is everything just to be very clear <laughs> um, not going with pantheism that's different um, but that actually that the reflection of God is, is in a lot of things so um I think I get excited about metaphor because it helps to reframe and ask different questions about like, oh, if we looked at it this different way, would we see that God is actually journeying there with us as well? Um, so I think it ties pretty closely with my sense of spirituality and faith and meeting God um, and with my sense of purpose as well. Like how can I be useful um, and what are the gifts God has given me and how do I honour God and honor those gifts by using them well um and so yeah I want to write poetry that helps people to think a bit differently about the world and hopefully to see where God is in it and where he's walking alongside them that's good you you've got an example of a poem that you prepared yeah. to share with us is that right all right um so I wanted to share a piece that um, I wrote, my church actually was doing a series on Esther um, and my minister asked if I could write something on Esther. So I preached, I did a, a sermon on, on Esther um, and then I did this poem on kind of a different part of Esther. So it's called Marble Tiles and it goes like this. She didn't start out brave. If I die, I die. So now she walks, marble floors ringing under fearful feet, much louder than she would desire, slap, slap, slap. The sound of sandaled soles on cold stone tiles, echoing inescapably in grand, excessive, extortionate throne room and pillared aisles. If I die, I die. 
Did she want to hide behind a pillar that day, walking, heartbeat blocking throat, towards a distant king? She didn't start out brave. If I die, I die. Did she walk lightly, try to shrink the weight of her existence in fright, or yearn to fall through the floor, away from indolent stares? Did she keep her eyes lowered, tracing the lines on cool stone tiles, anything to avoid the fearsome face of the king who holds her life in his gaze? She didn't start out brave. If I die, I die. I see her in my mind's eye, Hadassah, queen in a world of rabid volatility, a trumpish king holding her mortality, yet walking tall with dignity, she is carried by the silent prayers of those she could have abandoned. She didn't start out brave. If I die, I die. Now she made a choice that day, not between certain or almost certain death, that's hardly a choice at all. And her motives, fear or sacrifice, some combination we'll never know for sure. But the one choice she did have, the move from fear to courage, to choose the strangeness of trust, no matter what came, with each fearful, brave step forward. And what of us? Do we occasionally walk a throne room in trepidation, with heart in throat wishing for silence and visibility, dreading to meet the eyes of our king in his glory? I know sometimes I do. But then, ah, uh, then I see, from the corner of my lowered eye, another pair of sandaled feet walking next to mine. Forget me not, gently murmurs the divine. I was not crucified for you to enter this throne room terrified. But, kind, he waits with me behind the pillar in the outer court on those days when I am shy of the throne room walk. Do we perhaps forget sometimes that our king is not Xerxes? We don't have to start out brave, but with our king we live, we die, and in his life we live again. We can in time learn to dance and smile in the throne room's ringing, singing, marble tiles. That's awesome. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that with us. It's, yeah. My pleasure. That's great. Um, I know for um, I know this from a bit of experience as well. For artists, community is a really important thing, and I think that mm. also reflects um, you know the life of faith. Community is a really important thing. Places that we come together um, to to do these things together. Can you tell us a bit about your your soiree events and your your um, artistic communities that I know you, you're a really big part of fostering? Yeah, yeah. Well, I get really excited about these, um, but I want to give you a bit of backstory behind them first. Please. So uh, a few years ago, I had a birthday party, and I thought, oh, you know, I'd actually heard someone else doing this, and I thought this would be a fun idea, just to have a little open mic at the birthday party, and so people could come and share a poem, and it could be kind of a poem for me, or a poem for others, or um, or p- perform a song, or whatever else they wanted to do, and wouldn't that be fun? So I had this lovely birthday party, and people shared some really beautiful poetry and encouraging pieces. Um, And I had one friend who, um, well, several friends there who weren't Christian and um, 
had come along, one friend in particular who's very talented musically but was quite subconscious about performing. And she, at the last minute, had decided she didn't want to perform, which is fine. Um, and I was like, oh, that's okay, you know, and we had our party and then most people left and then it ended up being like myself and maybe four other friends. Um, and so I said to this girl, I was like, well, look, no one else is here. Do you want me to get my guitar down and you can like have a go if you want? Like, So I went and got my guitar and I was like, look, I'll play and you can see just how bad it's okay to be because I'm really not like a great guitar player. <laughs> so I played a few songs and she played a few songs. And I had my songbook because, um, like I said, really not a great guitar player. I can't remember chords, even the songs I played like a gazillion times. And so I was flicking through the songbook and we came to the song um, – I'm trying to remember the name. This is going to be problematic. It is well with my soul. There it is. I just had to go through the chorus um, in my head. So we came to that song and I think we played it or someone was talking about how beautiful it was. And I said, do you know the story behind this? It's amazing. Like, you know, that's the crazy bit. And I had Christian and non-Christian friends in that little group. And um, one of the Christian friends knew the story, but like none of the others did, Christian and non-Christian. I was like, oh, well, can I tell you the story this guy who, like, um, was this really wealthy businessman and sent his family, he was going to go on a holiday to Europe with his family, he was in America, and um, at the last minute a business meeting came up that he had to attend, so he sent them on ahead and he was going to join later. Um, and while they were sailing across, the ship sank, and one of his children survived, but his um, wife and the other children were drowned. And so he got on a ship to sail across to Europe to reunite with his one remaining daughter. And while his ship was sailing through the same part of the ocean that their ship would have gone down in, um, he wrote the song, which is It Is Well With My Soul. And it's just, it's like when you read the lyrics with that in mind and he talks about the ocean, um, it's just groundbreaking. Like it's really intense. And so we then kind of started talking about that song and about like what does it mean that something can, that your soul can be satisfied in God even in the midst of, like grieving and that both the grief and the comfort in God can be okay together and what does that look like um and I had a moment where we were kind of sitting in my kitchen having this discussion and I thought this I love this like we're in the kitchen we're talking about art creativity and faith and God and grief and identity and meaning and all of these things together and it's not forced um and wouldn't it be like isn't this what houses are meant to be for like I would love if my house could have this happen all the time so then I sort of started to think about that a bit more and thought actually what if we actually created a bit of structured space for that to happen or a bit of intentional space for that to happen so I had a chat with my housemates and said you know you on board and um really over planned and overthought it got really nervous really got into my head it's really unhelpful my housemate bless her was just like all right look I can see you're just stressed out of your mind so what do you need me to do so you can come down a bit um, and it was very helpful, but she also kind of just talked to me about like, actually God does his thing in his way. We can't contrive it. We can't control it. We can't force conversations. What was natural and beautiful about that conversation in the kitchen is that it was so natural and comfortable and, you know, um, and so trying to force it doesn't make a lot of sense. So it wasn't meant to create space and then just kind of see what happens and God's will be done. So that was really helpful, <laughs> um, to have those kind of processings with her. And then, yeah, I had a few key people who were praying for it and a few key people who were helping me set up. And we started the soirees. So they run four times a year. 
Um, they run out of someone's living room and it's been mine and it's been my parents sometimes. It's been, um, I now run them with a woman called Sarah Rater and so we do them together. Um, and so it's been at her house the last few times because I now live in a studio apartment and there's a limit to how many people you can fit in there. Like I'm willing to try, but you know. Um, so yeah, so we run them four times a year. We pick a slightly different theme for each one, but the basic idea is you bring your art um complete incomplete you know. um i spent a bit of time talking about like we're not aiming for perfection um we're aiming for like excellence but even if it's not an excellence just bring something and share it like um this is you know if you have a perfect piece of art don't come here because i'm not sure that it exists so if you think you have it um yeah so just from creating that space with a bit of a theme and then i or um actually in the upcoming one we're going to have someone else help with them seeing it as well well, I see it um, ideally in a way that kind of I get really passionate about holding space. Um, so creating an event that enables space for people to um, talk, but also to breathe, to sit in silence and to have conversation and to move um, from kind of different space to space or experience to experience. Um, so that's one of the things I love about it is not only the like artistic contributions amazing and we have had poetry and we've had um songs and we've had ukulele we've had juggling we've had um someone baked oh, it wasn't a freond it was like delicious anyway madeline's they're biscuits they're good um yeah. that's an artistic expression um we had one of them the theme was symphony and so that's like a combination of different things and often it's a combination of music but it doesn't have to be um and so one of the attendees brought a book and made donuts and we ate the donuts as she read from the book so it was a symphony um nice and then you know we have people who have never performed before and are really nervous and come and share something and it's groundbreaking um so i love those spaces but also then love like the experience of how can i like um, transition from this performance to this performance and how do I take it from like really joyful to like really somber and contemplative mm. or sometimes just plain depressing and there's space for that stuff as well mm. and that's important and how do you help people to like go from one to the next without whiplash um, so I love all of that I love that it creates a safe space for artists I love that it feels missional I love that it like stretches me as an event planner and an MCer, um, and that it also stretches me as an artist. Um, interestingly, I wanted them originally. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah you should um, really be as externally missional as possible. And so everyone bring your non-Christian friends. And that was really good. And we had, you know, non-Christian friends coming. But also, like, artists kept coming, which is good. But, like, Christian artists kept coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they kept coming back. And then it kept becoming, like, a safe space for them. And that was kind of annoying me. And then God's like, maybe you just need to calm down and see that this is actually maybe what it was for as well. Mm. Um, And that actually there is a lot of value in that too. And what Mm. does it mean to love the church and to love outside the church, but both need to be held gently. Mm. Um, Yeah. So that's what the soirees are. Um, So this upcoming one is going to be digital um or virtual because obviously we can't go to different people's houses um 
So, yeah, I'm making plans to kind of have a virtual soiree set up. So if any, uh, if you or any of your listeners want to attend, you don't even have to leave your living room. Just um, <laughs> make sure you're wearing clothes because the webcams will be on. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's Sorry. that's soirees and um, I get really excited about them. And then sometimes they're really tiring and uh, then I think, oh, maybe we should just wind them up. And then there's like always at the end of those nights, there's always one person who comes and says, this is really important. I'm coming back. And I'm like, right, okay, not ready to wind up yet. So, <laughs> oh, um, we're stuck now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so people still need this. Okay, good, good. You know, and that's a good reminder for me that it's not about like how I'm feeling about them. It's actually what this, they are for other people. So, um. As we sort of come to the end of our time. Yeah, uh, I've talked your ear off a talking. bit here. <laughs> yeah, it's great. No, I love it. Um, it's awesome hearing what you're you're passionate about, and that's so obvious through the ways that you're, you're talking about all these different things. But um, just sort of wanted to give you another really broad question to finish if we if we start broad and finish broad. Um, and it's very you know, biblical. Made it very Follow clear. the pattern of the Psalms, yeah. <laughs> Um, and you made it very clear that you don't do small talk either, so this mm-hmm. uh, will hopefully work well for you. Um, yeah. What does the church need to hear? What does the church need to be thinking about oh. in this moment? <laughs> oh, man. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> about as broad as we can go. Hey? Yeah. I think um, I'm, I'm resistant to the question. Um, Tell me more. Well, I think... The temptation for creatives and artists in particular, but for a lot of people, and I think a lot of people of our generation, is to think of ourselves as as the new whatever, X, Y, Z. Um, we are the new church. We are the new artists. We are the new. Um, and I, I don't think that is honouring of God's work for the past 2,000 years <laughs> um, and of the millions of people who seek him in big and small ways and um, – so I don't think I have, like, a word for the church that the whole church needs to hear, I think. Um, man, keep seeking Jesus and, like, keep loving each other and, like, that's probably all I would say. Um, I think there's lots around the arts in the church that is important. But even that, like, we are not the most important people in the church. Artists like to think we are sometimes. Um, and that's sometimes what, what because we haven't. What are you talking about? Yes, we are. <laughs> And that's sometimes because artists have really felt unheard and that's really good to name. Um, and they've, artists have often not felt loved in the church or seen in the church or honoured um, for their gifts in the church. And it's good to name that that's not okay, that God has given a variety of gifts and all of those can be used to glorify him. But I think that's the thing. The point is not the art or the gifts or the, you know, the point is how are we glorifying God and loving our neighbour as we love ourselves. And so that means loving both our neighbour and ourselves. Um, and loving God. Yeah, I think that's all I would say. Thank you. Um, If people want to hear more from you or connect with you, where can they find you on the internet? Yeah, cool. So, well, the internet's the perfect place to find people now, isn't it? Because you can't find people in person. Um, Stay away, but don't, but do a little. Um, (laughs) So... uh, so I have a Facebook page that is just for my writing poetry stuff. So that's called Miriam Dale Writings, all one word, um, and you can search that. Uh, I have a an Insta, um, so at MimPoet, M-I-M-P-O-E-T, and that's all one word. Um, 
And then I have a YouTube channel, which is YouTube slash a whole bunch of letters because I don't have enough subscribers to make it a thing yet. So if you just search Miriam Dale on YouTube or Armchair Poet, um, but I think, Mitch, you'll have the links as well. All the links will be in the show notes. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'm exploring a new thing on YouTube, which I'm still sort of trying to figure out, which is what does it mean to um, to read poetry or perform poetry but not slam poetry online? Because there's a lot of slam poetry stuff online, but this is a little different. Um, so that's called the armchair poet because I sit in an armchair and I'm a poet. Um, so, yeah, those are places to find me. Um, and I also have two books that I think you'll have links to as well. Um, one is called The Common Condition, and that's based on it. The title is taken from a quote by Henri Nguyen. Um, and one is called The Weight of Hope. Um, and they are both available for purchase, and you can contact me through any of those avenues to ask for a copy. Thanks so much for spending time with us today, Miriam. Um, yeah, loved loved chatting with you and uh, loved hearing your, your thoughts on all these different things. And, yeah, thanks for, so much for being willing to share. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks heaps to Miriam for joining us on Mission Unplugged. If you want to connect more with Miriam, you can find her on Facebook at Miriam Dale Writings or on Instagram at MimPoet. She also has a YouTube channel where she posts recordings of her poems. The link to that is in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Mission Unplugged, a podcast by Embody. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review us so more people can find us. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And join in the conversation right now on our Discord server at embody.org.au slash discord. Safe Water September, Embody's annual fundraising challenge to drink just water for one month, is now live. We'd love for you to gather your Safe Water September squad and sign up to raise funds for life-changing Safe Water projects. Find out more and sign up at safewatersepember.org.au. Embody is a national community of young people passionate about mission locally, nationally and globally. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at EmbodyAU and visit our website at embody.org.au. All the links are in the show notes. Embody is part of the Global Mission Partners family. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands and waters of Australia and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. Music in the show is by Josh Woodward. We'll catch you next time. And thanks for listening to Mission Unplugged.